everybody and welcome to episode 4 of Here We Go Again, Israeli Politics. In this week's episode, we will discuss multiple segments and have a guest. Our first segment will discuss the presidential election coming up next week. After that, we will discuss how the change government may not be off the table. Then we will have a guest come on and share his contributions to bettering the image of Israel around the world and discuss with him a little about the anti-Semitism spreading around the world and what he feels about that. The next topic will be an update on the Prime Minister's court case. And finally, we will discuss Bagatz, as promised, the Supreme Courts of Israel. And then we will finish off the episode with our fun, dumb economic decisions of the week. Please feel free to contact us at our mail, hwga.pod.gmo.com, that's hwga.pod.gmo.com, or follow us on Twitter at hwga underscore pod. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Here We Go Again. First topic. Our first politics topic of Here We Go Again will be the an update, a quick update on the presidential election, which is set for next Wednesday, the 2nd. Um, the president, it is currently still between two candidates. No one else can join at the moment. Between Itzhak Buzhi Herzog, um, the former head of the Labour Party, and between Miriam Peretz. Um, last time we stated that we do not believe that Miriam Peretz has any shot. Um, I am taking back that opinion. Um, she has more of a shot now um, for many reasons. Number one, she has garnered some support from people that were believed to be strongly in Herzog's base and um, gotten a promise for them for their vote. And there has been a scandal this week with Herzog um, with texts um, from when he was the head of the Labour Party, which came out against other members of the left that now supposedly have to come and vote for him. Now, it's important to realize here that um, the presidential election is unique in one of the only elections, which is a anonymous election, which means that every every um, Knesset member goes up and votes with no one knows who he voted for. So even though still the odds are for Herzog's favor, anything could happen last minute. Anyone can vote in any way. And we'll only see on the 2nd of June. Yes, sadly, those types of things still exist and do not let us hold our, um, our representatives for account for electing a terrible president. Okay, our next topic is going to be, once again, back to the mandate. Lapid is almost done with his mandate, just a few days left, and he has a few options ahead of him. Number one, we have stated in previous episodes that the change government is completely off the table. Apparently, may not be as off the table as we thought. So, why was it off the table? Well, we stated in previous episodes that because of the increased conflict with the Arabs and the lack of denunciation from the Arab parties, a changed government based on one of the Arab parties was increasingly unlikely. However, Lapid has been ramping up um, meetings with different uh, parties and Bennett has not come out with a firm statement um, against against this uh, change government, even with immense pressure from the right to do so, and the right have been acting truly terribly towards him the past week and a half. They have been just bashing him on the news, saying he all he wants is a change government, and he's the one that's holding up this change government, his this right-wing government, even though they don't have a right-wing government with um, um, either way, even with him. He said he'd support any right-wing government. I don't see what their play is here. 
I think it's just to slander him in the news. But um, they are still going for this change government, and maybe they can do it in the next few days. You know, it's interesting to see um, that Yari Lapierre took a different method um, in the last week. In the first try to build this change government, his main, as we know, you know, the main key player is Naftali Bennett. And he said, let me get Naftali Bennett, let's get to agreement, and then all the other parties will fall in line. Which, which made sense, because once Bennett says, look, we agree, we're closed on it, then let me see another left party that's going to come and say, we're not interested and we don't want to switch, uh, get Bibi out of the throne. Now, what Yair Lapid now understood is he took a different tactic. He says, you know what, Bennett wants to join, but only when he knows it's closed. And once he knows, tomorrow he could become prime minister. So Lapid actually stopped his conversations with Bennett, started having conversations with all of the left-wing parties and all the other parties in this government to make agreements. And he closed and signed agreements with these parties on the goal to be able to come to Bennett. If he, if he manages to sign every one of the other parties, come to Bennett and say, I have 56, I believe is the number without Bennett, saying, I have 56 seats. No, 56 are, would be, 50. it would be 57 with him and then the Arabs. No, no, I'm saying that's including the Arabs. He would he would agree with the Arabs before he gets Bennett anyway. Bennett's not going to come in and take the chance. Once he closes everyone, he would make the agreements with the Arab parties. And then he would come and say, we have, again, I believe it's 56 or 57 without Bennett, including the Arabs. And then come and say, we have the whole government. All you need is for you to come in and you'll become prime minister. That is the one and only chance for this to happen. Do I still believe that it will happen? No, although the chance definitely still exists. Um, yes, as we say, the chance exists unlikely to happen, but Lapid has a few other plays in the air right now. He has also suggested another option came out a report this week is that Lapid is attempting to make a play in the next few days that if he cannot come and form a government with Bennett, however he does it, then he will come and do early elections. He will come and just um, disperse the Knesset as we discussed the previous episode. It is not the president who does this. The Knesset itself has to do it. He will come with a vote and attempt to disperse the government so as to come and decide and say, um, and decide when the elections are. Now, he came up with a few different options for this. He'd attempt to do it with the vote without the people of the right, but he also immediately came to Bibi and said, sit with me. Let's discuss it. Let's decide on a date that's convenient for the both of us. You have a vacation this time. I have a vacation this time. Let's decide on a convenient date. The Likud doesn't support it um, for for reasons that we'll discuss in a moment. And um, the change government is still a threat to them. Okay. Now, why does Lapid want this, you think? Why does he want to have an early elections? Yeah. I, I really I don't understand it. Maybe you'll enlighten me with your idea. To me, it just feels like it's just a play of pow- a power play, just to show that he's in control. I think he understands if I don't have a government, a why waste the time and why take a chance of a different government forming? Now remember, he knows that there's no scenario, and this is I think the main idea here. He knows that there's no scenario if it goes to the Knesset that he can form a government because he needs 61 votes, as we mentioned last week, that will support the government. So he doesn't have it. But what can happen in those 30 days? There's still a government available, assuming that Saar decides to go with the right. So that government can exist without him in those 30 days. And more so, he knows that the pressure on Bennett, which technically right now still has both options, in the 30 days, whatever amount of days to come after, when it goes to the Knesset, the only possible government will be right wing. And then Saar will be under a lot more pressure not to force elections just because he hates Bibi. Um, I believe you're right. And I believe that's the government that he truly fears in this scenario. But I think it's more than that. I think he wants, if he can't form a government, he wants election as soon as humanly possible. 
he currently holds an immense amount of power. He's the first person, um, aside from Gantz, who in the end is no longer truly a political player, to was given the option to form a government, and he's put on the same stage as Bibi. He's on the same level, just from the opposite side. And he wants to be seen as his replacement. He's polling right now incredibly powerfully. He wants an election well, as I mean, soon as possible. Once again, he's polling the same as any head of the left polls. It's the same people that have no idea who to vote for, never get anyone to vote for, and vote for them. He's not any different than Gantz was. He's not any different than Bougie Herzog was when he ran with C.P. Levini in the end. They still got a head-to-head left and right. They just always lost. The difference is that... He's not polling at 30. He's pulling at 20. He's pulling at 25. Okay. That's the same numbers as we No, you're right. It's exact same numbers. But as we mentioned in the previous episode, the difference is that the right screwed up. The right made the Arab parties an option. He can form, if he gets the same numbers as we've had with Bushi, he can form a government with the Arabs and without the left. I don't think it's as easy as it sounds, but definitely change the situation. Okay. On to our next topic. Okay. And I'd like to welcome our guest for this week, Eitan Fishberger. Eitan, how you doing? Good, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. Okay, so why don't you share with us a little bit what you do, how you promote Israel around the world. Of course. So I work for an organization called CAMERA, which stands for the Committee for Accuracy in Middle East Reporting and Analysis, and I am paid to remember that acronym. Uh, And basically what we do is we monitor uh, and combat misinformation about Israel uh, in the media, whether it's American media, British media, uh, Spanish media, Hebrew media, or even Arabic media. Uh, which has been very active lately. And in addition, we have a campus department where we basically, we, we empower students on over 80 campuses around the world. Uh, and we help them write uh, informative op-eds for their school papers or other Jewish newspapers. We help them organize educational events for their peers where they can correct a lot of the misinformation that's promulgated on college campuses, whether from professors, the administration, the syllabi, uh, and their fellow students. You know, there are groups all across American campuses, uh, like Students for Justice in Palestine, Jewish Voices for Peace, which are really hostile towards um, Jewish and Zionist students, and that's what we aim to, to combat. Okay. How did, this, how did this start? How do you get into these campuses, and, and how did they get to you? How's it work? So uh, a lot of it is them finding us uh, because, you know, they'll experience some sort of incident on campus, some sort of uh, anti-Semitic incident where someone will yell at them, you know, free Palestine when they see them walking around with a yarmulke or, you know, they'll start chanting from the river to the sea or student groups will have a memorial set up for uh, Ghassan Kanafani, who is a PFLP terrorist leader who's one of the masterminds behind the Lode Airport massacre. So when a student witnesses something like that that happens... They, they feel like they have to do something, but sometimes they don't have the tools or the experience to fight it. And so they'll contact us and say, you know, what can you do? What can you help me with? How can I, you know, combat what's going on? Uh, and oftentimes we reach out to students ourselves when we hear about incidents that happen on campuses and we, we have contacts on that campus. We'll, we'll, you know. So is this something that you, you know, that kind of repeats itself and it's the same certain type of situation? Or are there certain times you're like, wow, this is a unique issue that we have to combat specifically? So sometimes there are specific things that occur that are like, wow, and that are, are things that we haven't seen before. Um, but those are few and far between. Uh, I mean, I, I like to describe it as sort of like every year has its specific theme of, of anti-Israel, um, you know, slanders, let's say, that, that occur on campus, that you hear on campus. So at the beginning of this academic year, we knew, all right, what's going on right now? There's 
Um, not to get too political, obviously, God forbid, but um, <laughs> we had the COVID pandemic, which, you know, thank God seems to be waning. And we also had all the, the Black Lives Matter protests. And with those two things came a lot of anti-Semitism in the form of, A, the deadly exchange. People were saying there's this canard that basically uh, American law enforcement are trained by Israel, by Israeli police to be to, to, to brutalize, you know, minorities in the U.S. So we knew that that was going to come up a lot, and evidently it did. And we also knew that uh, that that all of the funny libel, funny funny and horrific libels of, of like Israel is somehow responsible and intentionally spreading COVID among Arabs in Israel or Palestinians. Really? Is that something that you saw? Yeah, and all the time. And those were sort of the things that we've witnessed. So that was kind of the main theme of the year. But there, there's very little that we haven't seen before. Oh, okay. And so... Let's, uh, how, does, how does someone contact you? You know, if someone's interested in you personally and trying to hear about your work, and if someone on a college campus in Israel or abroad says, you know what, I want that support, how do they contact you? Well, they can always go to cameraoncampus.org and reach out to us. They can always reach out to me at eitan at camera.org. That's E-I-T-A-N at camera.org. Uh, and we'll help however we can. Amazing. Okay, so... One more question I want to ask you about if we're discussing the anti-Semitism is, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware that lately there's been a rise in anti-Semitism in, in, in general populations that I don't know to say if we're, we're not used to it there or it's just a, a, something that personally feels like a, a more uh, a bigger deal right now if we're talking about it in the streets of New York or in London. Um, and in parallel, it's very interesting, but you know, if we look at the last Gaza conflict that we just recently had, there were certain Arab countries that we would never have believed before that would be supporting us that ended up coming in, in complete support for Israel defending themselves. And I wanted to hear what you what you think about that, what you feel about that, and where you think that's going in the future. Of course. So I think as far as the Arab countries, I'll start with like the fun, good stuff first. Obviously, we had the Abraham Accords uh, last year, which was the peace agreements between Israel and a couple of Middle Eastern countries. I think it was the UAE, Bahrain... Uh, and Morocco, were they part of that? They were yes. considered part of that? Yeah. So Morocco, um, and, and what's interesting, in my opinion, about this peace accord is that unlike the ones with, let's say, Jordan and Egypt, which were government to government, and it was sort of like a cold peace, this is more of a warm peace. So if you're active on, you know, social media, and obviously social media is real life, um, but if you're active on social media, you'll notice that there's there's thousands of, of Emiratis and, and Bahrainian people that are, are just so... Um, supportive of the Jewish state and, and, you know, we're supportive of them and we're just having all these different initiatives that we're, that we're doing together, whether it's business, agriculture, we're really, there's a, a camaraderie there that, that didn't exist um, with the other peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan. And I think that that's manifesting itself during this last conflict when we, we had really uh, a lot of, a lot of support um, from them. As far as what we're going, what's going on in the West uh, you know, it's it's hard to really, I guess, put a finger on why it's happening. I mean, there, there's been, it, it has not been as friendly, I'd say, um, I'd say as the, the Arab countries, the Gulf countries. I think there's a lot of uh, members of the U.S. Congress, like, you know, the squad, the Rashida Tlaib, uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, all, Jamal Bauman now, Bernie Sanders, who were really... Um, They've so bought into the narrative of of Israel as the big bad oppressor, <clears throat> excuse me, that they're they're spreading that to the rest of their audience, and they have a huge influence. And they, you know, when they say Israel is an apartheid state, Israel is a colonial state, Israel is oppressing people and you know wantonly killing innocent people, 
the natural response for people is to is to you know who would support a country like that and so it's it's no wonder that we're seeing a lot of this stuff i think that that really contributes um to a lot of the the hate that we see uh, towards israel in the streets of america um and i think that there's sort of a broader thing that's going on um which i mean it's it's kind of a big topic to get into right now but the it seems to me at least that in america this idea has taken hold of of so many young people that if you are strong you are inherently an aggressor and if you are weak you are inherently uh, a victim of the aggressor and so when they see israel who's big and strong and they see hamas who is you know ostensibly small and weak they say okay well it must be that israel is oppressing them um and they'll they'll talk about you know look at all these disproportionate uh, disproportionate uh, death toll on both sides and that's evident uh, you know that's evidence of Israel just brazenly killing everyone that they can and and not discriminating between civilians and and uh, terrorists um, and obviously that's not true it's just because Israel thank God is so good at protecting its its citizens and you know when you think about it Israel Israel launched so many precision strikes. Um, into Gaza and and did everything in its power, whether it was roof knocking or or um, roof knocking or warning uh, civilians in Gaza of an impending attack. We've done everything in our power to to really um, you know prevent civilian casualties, and it's uh, it's important and part of the work that we're doing at Cameras to try to just get that out, get the truth out about all that. Okay, that's really incredible. And so my one last question to you is, what is your message to our listeners? What is it that you advise and think that, you know, every one of us should specifically try to do and be doing for this situation? So I think, I mean, it's it's easy to say here from Israel where all we have to deal with is, is you know, missiles from Hamas. Um, it's very hard to be, to be, you know, a Jew and let's say on, just to focus on my niche one second, to be a Jew, to be a Zionist Jew on American college campuses, it's really, it's really difficult. And the one advice that I could give, or or I guess the one, um, you know, piece of solace that I can give is that you're not alone. There are organizations like Camera, there are people out there who can help you, uh, if you can take a stand, stay strong, um, don't be afraid to, to push back against the hate and the misinformation. And, um, you know, keep it up. You know, the Jewish people were people that persevere, and we'll, we'll get through this. Eitan Fishberger, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We are now going to move on to our next subject. Our next subject is going to be the Prime Minister's court case. And right before we get to that, I would just like to mention that we just got a live update as we are recording this that Bennett is meeting with um, the deputy prime, no, the replacement prime minister um, and uh, defense secretary Gantz um, right now, even though he is technically not discussing the change government. Now, actually, on to our next topic. Um, we, were just go- we are going to just give a short update on the proceedings in the prime minister's court case. Um, the prime minister's court case is currently discussing whether or not he put... Um, illegal pressure on the head of WALA, which is a news organization, to give him good um, articles and bad articles for different politicians. Um, And there was a very interesting update this week on the case that the defense came and showed 
um, again and again through the records of the CEO of the previous CEO of Wallace Phone that it was not just Bibi who was in correspondence with him, but almost every single politician in this country was in correspondence with him and sh- and pushing him to give them certain articles and certain titles on articles even from Kahlon to Lieberman all throughout our um, our government at the time. Different parties, different political affiliations, different topics that were shown. One Kahlon even threatened them at one point. So what does this practically mean? What does this make a difference? It makes a difference a few things. Um, A, the prosecution was seriously reprimanded by the judge for not passing over this information in the first place. Um, The defense received it in a different way, and the prosecution did not pass it over. And I think, and it's showing that in this specific scenario, that of the larger um, trial, it's very hard to claim that he's guilty of any wrongdoing if it's such a prevalent issue. And if it truly is such a prevalent issue, why is he the only one being investigated? Since we're speaking already of uh, political investigations, I would like to mention that we will probably cover this in the future episodes, that um, w- the head of one of the Haredi's parties, the Sar Yaakov Litzman, is currently um, under the threat of indictment from the Yoamash. But more on that um, a little later. Um, this will lead us into our next topic, which will be, as of course, as promised, the courts. This past Sunday, May 23rd, the Supreme Court, called Bagats, and as we will refer to them from here on, heard a case on part of a Chok Yesod, a base law, that we will explain in a moment what that means, and it decided to throw the law out, okay? Now, before we get into the details of this, and the details of this particular case, we'd like to examine the history of the courts and what this means. Now, before I explain the entire history of the court, um, I would like to state clearly that we will not mention um, the Yoamash here or the administrative state. Both are legitimate topics we hope to cover um, in a different week. They are just too much for us to cover on this week. The Yoamash being the attorney general. Well, debatable. Um, Okay, so a brief history. As you all know, uh, the U.S. Constitution... um, it instructs that there will be three separate branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. The positions, their separation, and their balance of power, although there have been fights over them in the past, is supposedly clearly laid out in Article 3 and uh, Section 1 and 2 of the Constitution, which states the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. Wait, I'm confused. Why are we discussing America? I would like to just contrast America with Israel so we see what went wrong by us and what could have been done to avoid many of the messes that we've had throughout the years. Um, And another important thing point of the Constitution to note is Article 3, Section 2, which just refers to the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court of the United States. Section 2, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity, and so on and so forth. There is a long uh, article here. Now, the Supreme Court in the United States can strike down any law 
or executive order in the United States, but only under the basis of the Constitution or previous act of Congress, as was shown in the court case of Marbury versus Madison in 1803. Judges um, in the United States, uh, federal, uh, federal and uh, ex- um, Supreme Court justices, are appointed by the president and then confirmed by the Senate. Now, all of that is in the states. In Israel, things work very differently. There are not truly three separate branches of government. There is the legislative and the executive, which form one branch-ish. And there is the judicial, which forms another branch. When Israel was formed... Um, there was a constitutional um, committee formed, which was in general the first Knesset, was met, was told to write a constitution. Now they failed miserably, and they also gave up kind of quickly. Um, in nineteen in June third, nineteen fifty, um, there was a decision called Hachlatat Harari, after um, one of the. Um, members of parliament at the time, which uh, said that we will not form a con- write a constitution now. We failed. The constitution will be written in chapters. There will be things called Hukei Sod, that each one of them will form a basis for the constitution. That's why they're called base laws. Um, and one day, all of these will be brought forth in front of the Knesset um, when this when this committee finishes its work and they will all be joined together to form the constitution of Israel. Um, the first base law, which was only passed in 1950, uh, 1958, was the base law of the Knesset, which is eight years after this decision. It took eight years for them to decide how the Knesset would be elected, how many members would be in it, how they would make laws, and all of that. Um, now, the government didn't come until 10 years later. The base law of how governments were formed, even though governments existed, wasn't written until 10 full years later, until 1968. The law for the judicial branch, Chok Yesod Hashiput, did not exist until 1984, 34 years after the decision was made to not write a constitution. That is 34 full years where the authority of the courts as opposed to the different branches of government, was not just murky, it was unclear and no basis for it at all. The laws for liberty and human rights were not passed until 1992. We'll get back to that law soon, it's a very important one. A chokesod, but just generally about it, a base law is passed with a simple majority. You don't even need a 61 majority. It is passed with the majority of the people present at the time. Wait, but what's what's the idea of a base law? As we mentioned a little bit earlier, the idea of a base law is to come and for, and be a base for the Constitution one day written. It will be an article in the Constitution. No, but is it supposed to be a stronger law than a regular law? So when it was originally written, the Supreme Court, the, 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 the Knesset, everyone agreed, base laws hold no more value than any other law. They are simply a law. They're a law that's important, there's a law that's inherent, but they hold no more value over other laws until something changed. They also could be passed or changed by basic majorities. Aaron Barak, who was the head of the Supreme Court in um, 1992, when the Law for Liberty and Human Rights was passed, 
um, חוק, חוק, חוק יסוד חוק, חופש האדם וחירותו, um, changed everything. He said that this law, even though it said it in nowhere in this law, created a special status for these חוקי יסוד. There was no basis in this language for him. These status that he saw granted him the ability to throw out laws created by the Knesset that for whatever reason he saw, as long as they supposedly contradicted one of these חוקי יסוד, because these base laws were supposed to be above and beyond. Now, he even claims, he had no shame, he even claims that they gave him, he writes in an article, he wrote that the Knesset gave him an unconventional weapon to use against it when they passed this law. Now, obviously, this law was sadly passed by a right-wing government. There wasn't even a majority of the people in the, of the Knesset present at the time. It was passed with 53 members of Knesset there. There wasn't even a, a true majority for this law to pass at all, and it was passed with a majority of right-wing votes. And this is a law that changes the face of this country. Yes, because Aaron Barak used this law to absorb into the Supreme Court immense amount of power. He used this law so that he could throw down whatever law he didn't like or that he didn't see as matching um, the other base laws for the simple reason that they didn't match it. He also somehow granted them an ability so that he can claim that these laws couldn't be changed by a normal Knesset, that you need a majority of 61 or maybe even 80 to change them, which have been many prevalent debates. Now, before we get to how he had the ability to truly go and change, um, throw down laws, he instituted a few other things, a few other tools that he used and that other courts used. The first one is a very um, a famous sentence in Hebrew, Hakol Shafit. Everything is judgeable. There is no such thing as outside of the jurisdiction, as opposed to, as we mentioned with the U.S. Supreme Court, whose jurisdiction is clearly laid out in the Constitution. Everything is under the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court, and there have been many terrible ramifications to that. The second thing that he instituted was the spirit of the law. Judges were now able to base their rulings on the spirit of the law, and not on the written text of the law. They could say the people who passed this law meant this or this, or that's not by the spirit of the law, and they could throw out a law or rule even in almost contradiction to the wording of the law. Well, isn't the spirit of the law subjective? Inherently. But they are the elite of but the do country. But they claim that they are doing the spirit of the law when the law was written, or the spirit of the law in today's world? Very good question. They are incredibly inconsistent about it. They will do it as the spirit of the law. They usually claim when it was written or what should have been the spirit of the law when it was written, but they're not very consistent about it. They try to, They see themselves as the moral arbitrators of the law, of the country, and we'll get to that soon. And the last two things that they instituted which are relevant to us are what's called svirut and midatiut. Um, reasonable and... Um, I guess it would be relevant response, not really relevant. Um, it would be a appropriate response. What does that mean? That they can now change the law, or even if the law writes something, they're saying it's not. It, 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 even if it doesn't exist in the law, as long as it's not reasonable for someone to do this, or for for a law to say this, or if it's not a proportional, 
exactly, then I can I can change the law. I can say this law shouldn't work. I can change in a court case. For example, we know someone who technically by the law was incredibly right, but in a court case about a, uh, a TV, he was told by the judge, you're right, but it wasn't reasonable that um, that you didn't check the price tag. So... No, no, no. He checked the price tag. He saw the price. It was on the website. The website was wrong. The website had a, had a bug. And the court clearly stated, the judge stated, he was correct. You that you should have won this case, but it's not reasonable to have them give you a seven thousand shekel TV just because they made a mistake on their website, even though that's what the law says that they are responsible. Meaning that they pretty much made the Knesset a moot uh, body. They have no power. Now, there is one more topic about the judges, which is very problematic. Before we truly get to a debate on this law, which is electing judges. Electing judges in Israel, I believe we are the only democratic country in the world which has judges involved in the process of electing judges. Um, by section 4 of the Chok Yesod Hashvita, which as we mentioned was passed in 1984, there is a committee which is meant to elect judges. This committee is formed up of the Minister of, of Justice, another minister for the choice of the government, two members of parliament, two members of Lishkat Olche Hadin, which is um, the lawyers of the country, um, and the head of the Supreme Court, and two more justices from the Supreme Court. All that's needed is a base majority of this committee to, um, uh, to, to appoint a justice. Now, it's important to note here, by the simple math, Non-elected individuals, meaning the two lawyers from the lawyer, from like the bar association, the, and the judges make up a bare majority of this committee. Non-elected individuals can always simply elect judges. This is horrendous to me. They're not held to account ever. And it's, it's so bad that they just simply elect whoever they want. It doesn't matter who you vote into into the Knesset or into uh, the, uh, the, the government as long as the justices can rule all. Now, it, it's become a serious issue and has been debated heavily among the, uh, the right and the left. The left is always against changing this simply because the courts agree with them. And the right is always for changing um, this even though they haven't always done it because it wasn't convenient politically for them. Um, now, as to this specific case, this law was created, um, it's called Psharat Hauser, after Chavir Knesset Hauser. This law was created to um, change the base law of, of the government to allow them to not pass a budget this year. Not just did they not pass a budget, they were also allowed, when one does not pass a budget in Israel, they have to pass a budget through a certain amount of time. If they don't, um, it's stipulated that they will each government body will take a um, whatever amount of money they had um, the previous year, divide that by 12, and that's what they get every month till a budget is passed. Now, they changed the law saying they will get an X amount of money. I think it was um, $11 billion. Um, and they don't have to pass a budget. Now, the law itself was inherently crazy. I don't deny that. But the... Um, the Supreme Court threw it out as an overreach by the legislative branch. Now, 
it's 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 very hard for us to understand this. This was an earthquake in the political climate. What they did here is made a a base law, just a merely suggestion to the Supreme Court. And it, it it I don't understand it. How can they do this? Now, before we get to the debate of whether or not they were right or wrong, um, I would like to just note that the everyone on the right came out against the uh, court's decision, whilst most on the left or on the center left came out in defense of the courts as the u- the split usually is. Now, do you think they were right in this decision? So, let me ask you this question, and and I still haven't gotten myself a clear answer. I obviously understand the issue with it, and I think that the people who were chosen by the people should be the ones that pass laws and make decisions, and the court's job is to obey those laws and enforce those laws, but my question is as follows. You know, a politician, by definition, is a politician. He's affected by the people who vote for him, and he's affected by, by what they want and what they believe. Now, as you say, that's his job. And if the people want, you know, one would come and say, if the people want, by that we mean 60 plus perc- 50 plus percent of the people, so 61 votes and above, want a certain thing, then that's what the people want, and that, by definition, is just. That's, that's a statement. But my question is a little different. See, I can sit sometimes, and I want to think of a good example, but, you know, if I know that my voters, my voters believe that I should get rid of all immigrants in the country, and I should push them out and send them back to their, to the lands they came from. Now, as a politician, I don't, I'm not morally obligated to them. I'm obligated to the people who voted for me. So therefore, if I'm going to pass a law, I'm going to say, okay, great, I have a law tomorrow, they have to be leave, they have to leave and they have to um, be sent back home. I, as a, the courts, can come and say, you know what, even if it's against what I believe in, let's say I'm a judge and I'm saying I believe that they should be removed and they should be sent back to their home. But one second, I have to obey the moral ground and I have to come and say, wait, what are we doing to morally make sure that this is done correctly? You, as the politician, saying it what has to be done, I will come and say how it can be done morally. So the issue with that is you created people who are above the law. They are the moral arbitrators of the country that elect themselves. You created a, a, a body of government which is above all and they decide all. Now, the issue with that, they, they're pretty much overlords. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this goes back to the fact that we failed to make a constitution. We failed to set in place checks and balances. Truly, there's no check on the Knesset, you're right, which is an issue. They could technically overreach. They could go, if there is a day that there is 10 members of Knesset present in the Knesset, they could go and decide to vote and change the entire way our country works. They can make the voting different. They can get rid of the Supreme Court. They can make sure they, that no um, Jewish person who was born in Efrat has any rights. Now, that's truly terrifying. And, and, and Bagatz is technically right that they're saying there needs to be a check on them. But this is also an overreach by them, for them to presume that they are supposed to be the check. They, it was never written in anywhere for them to be the check. There is no check on the government and the Knesset. That's a problem. You're right. But they're not the moral arbitrators. In the end of the day, the Knesset passes a law, and unless it is in contradiction to a different law, then the Knesset is supposed to pass a law, and the government is supposed to implement that law. There isn't a separation between the Knesset or government. That's true. That's an issue. But without a constitution, I failed to see what was supposed to be done in this scenario. It was obviously judicial overreach, without a doubt. 
But it was also an overreach by the law they passed. They basically passed a law saying we could do whatever we want. The Knesset was passing a law and saying, I know we have our own law that we have to pass the budget, but we're not going to pass the budget. We're going to push it off a little bit because it works for us politically. Exactly my point. They were making a political move by changing the law. Someone has to be there to stop that. You're right. And I think it's a serious issue. It's, it's something that I've long believed that we need to form a constitution. I also believe we should change the way elections are done while we do it and the way um, a, a, a person in government is um, supposed to represent his constituents. But I, 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 I do see this as more a judicial overreach for the simple reason that the courts had an easy way out of this. Um, they set a precedent here that the courts can come and strike down a chok yesod um, because that it's supposedly an overreach by the, uh, the Knesset and not because that it breaks any other laws. Now, they could have gotten out of this simply by saying it's irrelevant. This, this court case that we're discussing is not relevant for two years at this point. The government already fell. The money was already spent. You cannot go back and try in retrospect to say that the law was not legal. Um, but the issue is that there is another Chok Yesod, um, which is very important to us, which is Chok Yesod um, Haleom, which was a very prob- which was a very controversial Chok Yesod at the time, which said that Israel is the national state of the Jewish people. Crazy. It, it truly is crazy. It also changed our founding document to say instead of... Um, a, a democratic and Jewish state or a Jewish democratic state. Um, now, the left has been trying to throw out this law ever since. And with this precedent, a Supreme Court could one day, not so far away, come and say, this law is not legal because it is an overreach by the Knesset to come and change what we are, even though we were always that. I think all of this, in the end of the day, comes back to one major issue. As we, just, as we already mentioned, we never set things in law. We never wrote down that judges needed to judge by the law. We never wrote down that judges would be elected in a, that, that judges would be elected in a sane manner. We never wrote down um, what the status of each law was or how or that they needed to be overturned in a certain manner. It's honestly incredible to think that we're living in a country, a, a great country that is so strong and moves forward in many, many aspects and is literally just a, a play of no law. Everyone does what they think. It's power plays, changing who has control. It's it's pretty incredible. And, and truly terrifying. And some of the fixes that could easily be done is changing the way um, judges are elected. Going- I think that's the biggest one. I think if you change if they're elected and you make them politically elected, just like it is in the States then you will get exactly that balance where they can continue being the moral high ground, but they're based on the morals of the people. I don't think morality... I Okay, I disagree with you there because I think, relevant to who they are, the most important thing to do is go and write a constitution. And not just... You don't even have to have a full constitution. Go and write down in the law. What is the status of these laws? How do you overturn them? And the most important thing, go and write down that laws that judges must judge by the letter of the law. Then it, it's irrelevant to who's there. Because, okay, they can. there's still a debate among judges on what does this mean, how do we interpret this in this law, but the judges in the end of the day would have to rule by the law. And whilst they be left-leaning or more right-leaning, that's more important than who elects the judges, I believe. And I think that 
if we we could do that we and that's another we go back to our previous topic such a swing and miss on this government we have a strong majority of right wing members Not of Congress. Not just right wing, strong majority that is a pro-reforming the courts. Let's be clear, not taking down the courts, not destroying the courts, reforming it in a way that it works, that the system works. Uh, well, it's an issue, uh, yes, they 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 I yes, they exist, but I think that instead of just reforming the courts, courts, that's again an Israeli solution. Israeli solution, we do a half-assed solution, put out the fire, we'll deal with it tomorrow, let the next person who's elected deal with it. When it's not my problem and it's not politically ugly. Because again, you have to do more checks and balances. Yes, you have to separate the branches. You have to separate the courts from the Knesset and the Knesset from the government and the government from the courts. All three must be separate branches. The courts somehow in Israel are the strongest branch of government, even though they should be the weakest. Um, And I think that you have to separate. I think you should also... Again, like many countries have, create even a balance within Congress, the Knesset, which, like Congress has, you have the Senate and the House, which are meant to balance each other out, that no one attempts to do a power grab just by a bare majority rule. Now, one of the important ways that have been suggested by the right in the recent history has been to do Chokhait um, Gabrut, which is a law that says with a certain majority of the Knesset, you can overrule Bagats. Um, that's one of the that's one of the right's big pushes to do this so we can overrule bagats. Again, sadly, the right does not think things through. It's a nice idea in theory, but um, easier thing to do, the more correct thing to do, not the easier. The easier would be this. The easier thing to do would obviously to fix the systemic issues in the country so that this majority that you want that you're speaking of could sim- would would have to be a majority to rewrite the law and not to overrule bagats. Whew, okay, so that was a quick recap of the, the entire situation with the Supreme Court in Israel. Um, we want to make it clear, obviously this was um, as much of a broad picture that we could have given. There were obviously some steps and things that were not mentioned as this topic can go on for hours. At the end of our podcast, we always get phone calls from people, wait, you didn't mention this, you didn't mention that. So first of all, thank you for your feedback. But again, I want to say this was a simplification of the situation with as much information as possible. We hope that you uh, managed to understand our message on the topic. Now, as there are updates on this in the future, we will obviously come back to discuss this and maybe go into more detail on things that we missed. And if there was something you uh, still want to understand or was not clear enough, please let us know. hwga.pod at gmail.com. And for our final segment, the Dumb Economic Decisions of the Week. Okay, and in our economic segment, our first topic is going to be um, the law that was recently passed by the government that was is to take effect in a few weeks, forcing every driver that is driving with a child um, in the car to install a special sensor that costs quite a bit of money for each child in each car that he drives. If they do not have the sensor with them, they will receive a five a 500 checkout and four points. Now, a little information about this. Um, this sensor is only provided by three companies in the country. I just wonder what, uh, what, lo- how much lobbying they had to do to get this to be forced into the, um, 
to be forced in, in, into law. They're also the only three companies who are allowed to sell it. And a little bit facts about this, only Italy is a country that forces censors like this and not a single, single study has shown that any lives have been saved as a result of these types of censors. Okay, I have multiple issues with what you're saying. First of all, I'll start with the end. I'm sure there are studies about the fact that this can help save children and help them not be forgotten. Second of all, even if there aren't studies yet, anything that even does a little bit to help, and every year we go through this, and every year we have the horrible tragedy, specifically in Israel, that gets very hot, multiple kids that are left in their um, uh, cars by their parents. It is a horrible, horrible death, and unfortunately another, a, a certain example of something that you know, also is destructive for the parents, which sometimes are to blame, but many times are not even to blame. It is terrifying. I could tell you as someone who's recently married, currently not a parent, but the idea of sitting there, you know, a lot of times when you get into this deep and understanding of when it happens, it's usually not the mother that takes the kids to the, to the gun. You should notice that many, most of the times, not all times, most of the times it's the father. And I think that, unfortunately, there's there's a logic behind that. And the fact is that sometimes, you know, let me put you in the picture. A lot of times it happens and you hear people around going, how can you do that? No parent. I can never imagine being a parent that forgets their child. Obviously, I can't imagine it by myself. And it's horrible. But let's say that you're a father that goes every morning at 6 o'clock in the morning to work, never takes the kids to school. It's always the mother's the mother's job. One day, there's a switch. You decided to take her. She needed to do something. So you said, okay, I'll take the kids. You took the kid in the morning. In the morning, suddenly you get a call from work. You remember you got to do something at work. You get to work. It's, it's not a process you're used to. It's not something you do daily. So you end up coming in parking and you get out and it's not a trigger of forgetting this child. And if this even has a chance of helping that, I think it's something important. I'm going to accept the fact that it's not something that should be mandated on four options. There should be a broader scale. But at the same time, I'm saying, how can you enforce it if not in this way? Well, in the end of the day, it's, first of all, these machines are incredibly expensive. They're expensive. They're prohibitively expensive for a young family with children who cannot afford, if they have three children, to put three of them in each of their cars. It's incredibly expensive. Okay. A grandmother wants to go a few minutes to, to the with, to the Makoa with her grandchild. She can't go, she has to install this device. You're forcing it into almost every car in the country and they're incredibly expensive. Even if you wanted to do this, this is the one of the few examples that maybe you could try to claim that the government would need to subsidize it, but no, you're just forcing them to buy from these three companies. And okay, I accept that maybe you have an issue. But again, there are countries that force this, like Italy. Show me proof that it worked. Or show me proof that it worked even without the comp without we being forced. We know that even apps work. We know that simple applications that remind you or people have a string that attaches you and goes back to remind, remind you. I can agree that maybe the implementation is problematic and the forcing of using these certain systems specifically is a problem. But in the end, and you know, I'll even accept maybe a law. Maybe it doesn't have to be Either it has to be in every single car, or maybe it has to be if you are the owner of a car and you have children up the age of four, you must have it in your car, okay? Because you have a, slow, a small percentage that I agree with that if a grandparent suddenly wants to take the, car, the, the kid to replace it, maybe it doesn't either because as we're saying, it's all a matter of statistics and percentage to try to save as many lives. There aren't that many lives being endangered by not allowing that. Maybe you should adapt it only for the cars of owners. But there should definitely be a certain enforcement because time after time again it happens and there has to be a way to stop it. Uh, uh, 
Maybe I I think it's a little bit too much, and I and think. And if you're gonna subsidize it, then you're the first one. Let's let's do a whole new segment. They subsidize it, and you're gonna come and say, "Look you're at right. that! You're the right. government is taking our money to pay for other people and forcing them to be given." It's not really subsidized. It's just gonna be taken out of taxes. So that's not a real answer. No, you're right. And the end of the day, but again, I just request proof. Show me that this that this machine worked any better than simply an app or something that you'd force. Even that, I don't like. I don't like that you have that you force people to do anything. But that's my uh, opinion. Now up to to a more problematic uh, topic economically. The Labour Party brought up to um, the organizing um, committee in the Knesset to bring it up to a vote um, in the Knesset um, a series of laws. Um, we'll read out a few of them. To um, One of them is free childcare from birth until 18. And another one is that parents will both get a, um, a year off after birth uh, paid for by the government. Now, aside from the fact on aside from the debate on whether or not free childcare from birth is legitimate or even a good idea, I believe that they're contradictory. If you get a year off, you don't need free childcare. If you get free childcare, you don't need a year off. Okay, I, I hear that. I wasn't sure where you were going with this point. I do agree with the that point that they kind of. Well, I guess maybe they're saying let's give one or the other. You know, well, maybe a lot of times, you know, how politicians work, you know, how law passing works in this country. We push for a more extreme law and then we settle for something that's in between. So you'll settle for one or the other. In general, look, I think that there's, I remember when I was reading it, I saw that they were also offering free colleges. I think the free college almost by definition is, is harmful for everyone. I think that college by definition is something that's supposed to bring you to a different standard that you decide to do if you want to spend I, I don't think it should get to situations in the states for the prices that you get there but as it is in this country it is a fair price to be able to go to college but it's a decision you have to make and that brings you forward if everyone gets college you're basically just stretching high school to four more years of school for no virtue because once everyone has a bachelor's degree no one has a bachelor's degree it doesn't mean anything for the workforce when it comes to free child care I think that's, a, that's, I understand that people are against it, but when we're going to discuss this question of taxes and spending, you know, if I look at our country and say, yes, we're going to take taxes, even though not everyone has children and some people are old, but that is something that I, I can understand the idea of saying we will take money out of the budget of everyone to help the young couples have preschool for their kids and to be able to start because some people can't afford it and some people need to be able to go to work. And that, I think, should be done. A year off for a birth for both parents, I think that's a little extreme. Well, it's unclear in the language of the law that they're suggesting if it would be both parents or split among the two parents, but either way, I didn't like it. And that was our economic segment, and with that, we conclude our episode. Thank you very much for joining us. I remind you, you could contact us at hwga.pod at gmail.com, hwga.pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at hwga underscore pod. Thank you for tuning in. This is Here We Go Again.